If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Ruth. There we will resume our study this morning, just after the book of Judges, just before you get into what we have, or what is part of the historical books in the Old Testament, Ruth. Of course, as I've already made mention many times, Ruth, it is contextually set in the period of the Judges. So really, as we're looking at Ruth, we're looking at a continuation of the story of the judges in some sense, not in the sense that we're looking at judges per se, but we're still looking at a time period in the nation of Israel uh, where people are living, and, and Ruth kind of gives us this little detour. You know, the judges, as I've said so many times before, the refrain is just so thick in there. Uh, there was no, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and each did what was right in his own eyes. And so by setting this in the period of the judges, of course, this is when it took place, but it's also given us kind of a counter to what does it mean when we start talking about as Christian believers, perhaps living in a countercultural way, what does it mean to live counterculturally? Well, there are many places we could point to. Certainly in the New Testament, we can look at Paul and his life and ministry, especially in the, in the book of Acts. You can see that. There are some other places in the Old Testament where you can obviously see it, I think. Moses lived counterculturally to Egypt, right? That's one. Mo, or, uh, Joseph, rather, lived counterculturally to Egypt. Abraham lived counterculturally to the pagan culture around him. But, and we remember those men for, for great reasons. But here's Ruth and Boaz, who just kind of living, let's just kind of use the word normal here, quote-unquote normal lives in keeping with God's law and God's precepts that actually makes them countercultural because they choose a pathway of truth and righteousness and uprightness and, dare I say, genuine biblical love, and it makes them stand out, as will you if you choose that path in modern-day culture. Well, we've looked at the return for, we've looked at Naomi and her family being in the fields of Moab, uh, the death of Elimelech and the two sons, the departure of Orpah back to her, her home and family, Ruth clinging to Naomi and giving that fantastic statement, where you go, I will go, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, and where you are buried there, I'll be buried making this covenantal statement of my identity has been transformed from just this Moabite to this person who is going to fear Yahweh. And it transformed everything. And so given that as the backdrop, that is kind of the foundational statement to Ruth, now we begin to build on the story itself. The other things have been contextual. They've been laying the groundwork for us, giving us these foundation stones where we'll now begin to set gospel pillars on top of them. And so much of Ruth, I love it because it appears so mundane. We're talking about people going into fields and, and reaping grain and, and people happening to take notice of other people and then these relationships that end up being forged. It is so mundane, it's so normal that we begin to see that God is, is weaving a tapestry together that will ultimately lead us to Christ. But we don't get to Christ without going through Ruth, which is a powerful reality. And so this morning, without further delay, let's turn our attention there. 
Ruth chapter 2. This morning we're going to begin breaking down chapter 2. We'll just get through these first seven verses. So this morning, if you will, follow with me in your Bibles as I read Ruth 2 verses 1 to 7. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this Word, its rich beauty, its power, its truth, and the many threads it is beginning to weave together to teach us of who You are and what we're supposed to be. Be with us as we study, renew our minds and hearts, and enlighten us with Your truth, the truth that is objective and eternal. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. When we think about the Proverbs, I mean, one of the things we think about the, the Proverbs as a literature, as a book, it's a collection of wise sayings, right? We, we, would, we would say that it is collection, it is wisdom collected on a page. It teaches us all about life. There are practical things in there. There are philosophical things in there. There are theological things in there. There's all sorts of rich truth in the book of Proverbs. Well, one can't think of the book of Proverbs without thinking of the phrase recorded in the wisdom literature that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we're going to be considered wise people, if you and I will be considered wise in our lives and as Christians, where does that start? Does it just start with experience? Does it start with knowing a lot of things? Does it start with intelligence? Does it start with a sense of cleverness? No, none of those things. Are those things helpful when it comes to being wise and executing plans? Sure. That's not where wisdom begins. Wisdom begins in the fear of the Lord. And so what that means then is wise living, true knowledge, and faithfulness are grounded in Yahweh Himself. That, that's the beginning of those things. That's where it starts. It's grounded in Yahweh Himself, and there's a big and here, and us being rightly related to Him. So in fact, we'll never be wise in the way that the Bible calls us to be wise if we are not rooting ourselves in Yahweh and being rightly related to Him. That relationship is the big determining factor in how wise we will actually live. If that relationship is non-existent, wisdom will be non-existent. If that relationship is anemic, 
then our wisdom will be anemic. So as our relationship with the Lord goes, so goes our wisdom. Because wisdom is so much more than intellect. It's what, how do you take what you know and apply it? That's the idea of wisdom. And contrary to what is commonly thought, experience is not what gives us wisdom. Do we learn wisdom from experience? Yes. Experience itself is not the primary source of wisdom. If it were, if that were the case, the oldest and most experienced among us would always be the wisest. And they're not. They're not. I was going to make a joke, Richard, but I chose not to. Because <laughs> I love you. The oldest are not always the wisest. And that is because even a young person can possess the wisdom that far surpasses that of an older person because it is rooted in who God is and how we relate to, to God himself, to that God. So we've got, to, we've got to keep that in mind. Experience helps. It helps us grow in wisdom but it was, it's not what gives it. That's what we have to remember. Wisdom has to be rooted in something that is objective and eternal. It has to be rooted in something that is immutable, that is, it doesn't change, and is constant. What makes Solomon wise, what made Solomon wise in his day? Remember, he was a young man, or youngish man, when he took over the reign of Israel. And his wisdom was not in all the experiences he had had prior to his becoming king. It was from the Lord who gave it, the Lord with whom he, or to whom he prayed, Lord, give me wisdom. And so we understand that this wisdom has to be something objective or rooted in something objective and eternal. And so when we think of the, the fear of the Lord, right, we've, we've heard that phrase before, uh, sometimes we can maybe struggle to define what does it mean to fear the Lord because of our our common, you know, um, conceptions of fear always have to do with terror. And I will say, when it comes to relating with the Lord, there is an element of that. We, we, do, we do need to be um, aware of who God is. But it's more than that. There is a, a reverence and humility when it comes to the fear of the Lord that we have before God. The fear of the Lord is worship. It is reverence. It is humility. It is the right understanding of who God is and our submission to Him and relationship to Him. So when we start talking about the fear of the Lord, it's a right understanding of who God is and how we live in relationship to Him and submission to Him. And so when we think about wisdom then, wisdom becomes an outworking of this fear, becomes an outworking of this relationship. It's the fruit of a heart grounded in the Lord. And so how do others know that we fear the Lord, right? Well, one, by our testimony. Richard just reminded us that Christian gave a solid testimony of fear of the Lord of several Sundays ago now. So one is by our testimony. The other way that we do it is by how we live our lives. Do our lives exude the fear of the Lord by choosing wisdom over folly? Now, Brad, what would folly be? Folly would be the indulgence of our flesh, things that are, that are known sins, things that, that are incongruent with the things of Christ. Every person in this room chooses folly from time to time. 
Every single one of us. All of us do it. Because there are times when folly either seems right in our eyes or it seems pleasurable enough that it's worth the risk. Right? If we're honest, it's because, A, we get confused and we think this might be the right path, and then later we see that that was folly. Or we decide, I don't care. I want to do what I want to do. Those things, they kick back against the goads of wisdom. But when we think about the fear of the Lord as characterized our daily surrender to His will and Word, it brings us back to true center, to that place where we need to be grounded. We show the fear of the Lord, right? This, this, this grand term, fear of the Lord, how do we show it? There's one word I can say, and it's faithfulness. How do we live our lives faithfully? That shows the fear of the Lord. Why am I making all this to do about the fear of the Lord and wisdom? Because that's exactly what we're looking at in Ruth. That's exactly what we're seeing. This fresh convert, as it were, this Moabite woman who was a natural enemy to Israel is showing us something that just about every person in Israel in the period of the judges failed to do. We're getting a little life lesson here of people who, who should have been fulfilling the fear of the Lord weren't. And this one Moabite woman who was new to the fear of the Lord is doing exactly what they should have been doing. So we've got a little bit of irony at work here, and it's beautiful. So we're looking at Ruth and Naomi. They're back in Bethlehem. What will they do? How will they live? How will they conduct themselves? What concepts and precepts will they, they live under? But here's what you see without Ruth. One of the first things you see is she doesn't presume on the mercy of anyone. What is she doing? She's taking what she's learned. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. And now she's going to live her life in service to another person. Yes, she's motivated by this statement of faith that she's already uttered. And that statement of faith is not just high tower theological surmising. So she's not just sitting back going, Naomi, where you go, I will go, and your people will be my people. With a scotch and a cigar in her hand. That's not what she's doing. She's saying, where you go, I'm going to go, and your people are going to be my people, and we're going to put our hands to the plow. I'm going to live that out before you. And that's, beloved, you can't ask her better than that in Scripture, you can't ask for better than that than someone who takes a theological principle and decides, I'm going to live this out, and I'm going to show you what it looks like. There is a reason. I've told you multiple times. There is a reason Ruth follows Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible. You want to get a good look at the Eshethiel, the woman of strength, the woman of noble character, then here's where you find it, Ruth. And we love that about her. So this morning as we think about what it means to live practically and actively in the fear of the Lord, there's an idea here that initiative and industry are aspects of biblical fidelity. Initiative and industry are aspects of biblical fidelity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease this out as we go along. So what we're looking at here is what it means to fear the Lord. So we've got a, we've got a shift in the drama. The drama is shifting now from hardship to redemption. Now, please don't mistake. I'm not saying that they're not still experiencing hardships. They still are. 
but we're getting a shift in the ethos of the narrative. In other words, it's just been focused on the hardship, and now we're about to start looking at the redemption. And I want you to see, and I'm using the word mundane here quite intentionally, I want you to see how mundane and normal and everyday this is as it occurs. And what it tells you and me, it tells us something very important, that God is actively involved in details. So the details of these things are lining up exactly as God has decreed it, and so these details matter. And so when we're looking at this, one of the things that we see exuding from Ruth is trust, a trust that she and Naomi should go back, a trust that when they get there, they're going to have a life, a trust that she's going to be able and go and glean. Beloved of God, you got trust, which is an aspect of fear, the fear of the Lord. Trust in the Lord is expressed in how we live our lives. How do we know that we trust the Lord? How do we live? Now, this is not to say, I know there are some of us here who struggle with anxiety from time to time and depression, and and this does not mitigate that, but how we live our lives is an expression of how we trust the Lord. If we're constantly in angst and turmoil and worry, then we need to, re- to reassess or reevaluate, are we really walking in trust? If we're constantly despairing, we need to reevaluate, are we, are, are we really walking in trust? And so as we're looking here, the writer gives us, beginning to give some insights into the resolution. The Lord does have a plan to redeem His people. That is exactly why Boaz is mentioned right here in verse 1. So we, we're getting this resolution. This, they've been in bitter trials, uh, Naomi and specifically Ruth have. But there's also a rich blessing waiting on them, right? They've been, they've been struggling, but there's also a, a blessing coming around the corner. Right when we are, get into chapter 2, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so when you see Boaz, initially, here's what we're told. He's of the family of Elimelech. Now, why mention that? Well, the reason you mention that now is because we're going to come back around to him as a kinsman redeemer, one who can rectify the situation that Naomi finds herself in. She's about to lose land and progeny and all these things. And so we're getting now a brief introduction to the one God will use to redeem the situation. He is going to bring restoration. And here's what I love. That God sees these two nobody women, and I don't mean that they're nobody. I'm not, I'm not denigrating their character or their person. These two people from history that you would otherwise not know about if it wasn't recorded in Scripture. And he plucks them out of Moab, and they get to where they need to be. And one of the first things we begin to see is Boaz is already coming onto the scene. The one person or one of two men that Naomi, that can rectify the situation that Naomi and Ruth are in. So we get this right out of the gate. What, is it, what does it tell us about God that he, he, he longs to be gracious to His people, that He brings restoration to His church, that these two saints, dear women, souls valuable to Him? He was not just going to turn them out and go, oh, well, you're collateral damage. No, He had a plan. And in fact, God weaved a plan together that was bigger than Ruth and Naomi ever even realized. And we'll get to that as we get to the end of the book where we see the genealogy there listed. So we see Boaz 
So we're told uh, of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Incidentally, that's not a very common name, even in Scripture. In fact, you'll find the name Boaz written on one of the pillars in the temple when it is built. And there is many different conjectures as to why Boaz is written there that range from having nothing to do with the Ruth narrative and range for being a spiritual father of the redemption that would come through the temple, which when they built it, they would not have known all the ins and outs of that. So it's, it's really interesting. But we, we're told he's of the, uh, a man of the clan of Elimelech, but we're also told he's a worthy man. Now, again, that needs to sit heavy in the backdrop of the context. This is the period of the judges, people doing right in their, what was right in their own eyes. How many? You go back and look through judges and find how many men are described as a worthy man. And in fact, that Hebrew word there is quite interesting. Uh, the word there is gabor, and typically gabor is mentioned for strength, valiance. But it carries the notion of not just strength in arms or strength in physicality, but of noble character. So a man, a strong man of God, might be called the El Gabor. So, So we have Boaz here. He's called this man of character. He's got integrity. What is he? He's a ray of light in a very dark period. He is a man of genuine faithfulness. That's why he's called worthy. And we might extrapolate from that a man of genuine faith, that his, his life is centered around his faithfulness to the Lord and his faithfulness to the Lord's people. And so when we're looking at this narrative, we see this God who is faithful, and what is the primary trait he wants to see replicated in his people? His faithfulness. God is faithful, and he was calling us to be faithful faithful in how we live our lives, faithful in how we treat one another, faithful in how we relate, faithful in how we handle His Word and His precepts, faithful in how we live our lives in a culture just like Boaz, it would have been very easy to capitulate. And so if we're going to stand for truth, we need to understand that that first and foremost means we're going to be faithful. And where do we learn said faithfulness? From the Lord who has shown Himself faithful. So you have this man who is called worthy. He's called to be faithful. And this is what I love in both Ruth and Boaz. You see this. God doesn't pull us out of the world. He doesn't restore us through situations to abandon us. In other words, we don't walk through trials just so at the end of it, God can say, all right, you're on your own, kid. But we also, as Christians, have to remember God doesn't call us through those things to do nothing either. And so, I don't know what your calling in life is, but I can tell you this much. It's not to do nothing. You may be called to proclaim. You may be called to quietly serve. You may be called to give hugs. You may be called to cook meals. You may be called to sweep floors. You may be called to teach Bible studies. You may be called to preach. You may be called to teach at an academic level. You may be called to lead discipleship groups. You may be called to do grocery shopping. We're all called and delivered to do something and to live our lives for the glory of God and for the good of our brothers and sisters. And Ruth is bringing this out for us. So, and Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. 
ask. So what is Ruth doing? There is an element of faith here at work, but she takes initiative. Ruth has seen their situation. They've come back during the harvest. She responds with action. And what I love is, is she doesn't pursue, presume on anybody's mercy. She's not waiting for a handout. She's not waiting for someone to just come and do it for her. It's actually saying, how, how, can, how can we provide for ourselves? How can we take initiative for ourselves? And so she sought to do this through gleaning. Now, gleaning is an interesting principle. It's an Old Testament law. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, specifically verses 9 and 10, and in other places you'll find this also in Deuteronomy, God talks about gleaning. In fact, I'll just read it for you real quickly. It's in um, Leviticus, as I said, 19, 9 and 10. This is just one place this is mentioned, but it's poignant, it's helpful, it's good. Leviticus 19, 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So the Lord, anticipating rich harvest along the way, said, and this is a bradism. Well, I mean, I didn't make it up. But leave a little meat on the bone. Don't go after every kernel of grain. There's going to be some of the edges of the field. Leave it. You're not going to get it all in one scoop or one swing of the sickle. What you don't get, leave. In other words, God was creating a principle of generosity and giving. God was creating a principle for His people to be generous and giving to other people so that everybody could have what they needed. Because surely there are going to be those among you who have needs that need to be provided for. So God creates this principle to glean the field so that as people could come after the harvesters and grab the wheat and, and, the, and the grain that was not grabbed initially so that they could have food to eat. It's a calling of the body, God's people, God's community, to be giving people so that it could go to help those less fortunate. A principle of giving that we see that stays consistent from Old Testament to New. Paul will eventually enlist the believers in the New Testament to give for the poor churches. And so that we look and we think of the principle of giving, it is an act of grace, it is an act of of trust, right? Trust that God will provide what we need. And so Ruth, understanding the laws, decides, hey, we should go glean, Naomi. Let me go gleam in the, fi- glean in the fields. Not gleam. She wasn't shining. Um, glean in the fields. So she sought to go out and glean. Now, again, this is a matter of trust. She's trusting two things. God will provide what we need, and that the harvesters will leave a little meat on the bone. Because what is in the human heart, beloved of God, sin, sin gets in there, and greed, and getting every last grain, taking every last, draining every last ounce out of what you can drain it so that you can make more and more and more and more and more for yourself. What God saw is that if we're going to be people who truly love and trust, where it begins, or one of the places it begins with is us being sacrificial to help one another 
through a process of giving, and in this way, leaving some grain in the field. But what I love about Ruth is that she's sought to be honorable. What does she do? She asks Naomi, can I go? So she doesn't just go, she asks. And then she says, and I'll go into the fields of those in whom I'll have favor. In other words, I'm not just going to go take randomly. I'm going to show due humility and respect to those who own the fields. So that's what she decides to do. She's sought to be honorable. She doesn't play on the sympathy of others. And this is where a while ago what I was getting at, sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is pick up a plow, right? Is, is let, let, a, let our, our minds and hearts understand that spirituality is a beautiful thing. But if we just sit around saying, well, I'm a spiritual person, and we do nothing, well, if we're, we're missing the heart of what it means to fear the Lord. Because fear of the Lord compels us to do, not just be. Now, I get it. Sometimes it's fun to just be. But as Christians, we don't have that option, right? We're called to be laborers in the field. Now, is there times for sabbatical, Sabbath rest? Absolutely there is. Are there times where it's good to set down the plow and reflect? Jesus did that. He sought retreat. But, beloved, our, our, our ethos, our, our general disposition should be, picking up our plow, and serving in the fields of the Lord. So she showed honor. She showed submission to Naomi by deferring to her. So she understands there's, there's an authority structure here. Here's, you know what I love about Ruth as she's doing this? She does the right thing the right way. And there is much to be said for doing the right thing the right way. Because I, I can see sometimes some people won't have the right thing in mind. They just go the wrong way about doing it. I'm guilty of that, in fact. Um, I used to be an adamant debater, and I'd insult people because I wanted them to believe the truth. Now, you let that sink in for a second. You're, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to be mean to them so that they'll see the love of Jesus, okay? And we can do that. We can do that about a myriad of things. We, we can say, I have right motives in mind, and I have the right end in view. It's just the way that I'm going about it is wrong. What I love about Ruth is she teaches us there's a right way. Hey, we should go put our hands to the plow. Hey, I should ask Naomi, can I do this? Hey, should I, I want to make sure that who I'm reaping behind is cool with it. So it's a right, it's simple. It's very simple. But beloved, it's profound because it's teaching us that there is a right way to do the right thing. In fact, the reason that we, God gives us the Ten Commandments is because if you remember the calf incident in Exodus, I want you to remember. Do you remember who they said the calf was? This is the Lord your God. This is Yahweh. They were trying to get at worship of the right God, but a profoundly wrong way. Hence, God says, you shall make no graven images. There's nothing. There's no image given you on the mountain, so you're not going to make an image because the human condition loves to go about what we would often call the right thing and not do it the right way. Ruth teaches us this simple lesson, honor, deference, obedience. Beloved, it's faithfulness for the good of others. That's the beauty of faithfulness, is it takes honor, deference, obedience, and it puts them together to live faithfully. Maybe that challenges you this morning. It challenges me, because it's real easy to get off track with those things. What I love here is God's provision in every 
details. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And in Hebrew, it actually says, and by chance, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, we've already been introduced to him in verse 1. We've already been told who he is. So by chance, right, by chance, or she just happened to glean in the field of Boaz. And so we're seeing God's providence at work. God's working on every detail for our growth and good. Now, I love the ironic language here, and that's what it is. It's ironic language. It's told from a purely human perspective by chance, or she just so happened. But God is working in the backstory to get Ruth where she needs to be. And you know what the irony really is? That this was a chance meeting that was sovereignly decreed? (laughs) That this was a a meeting where Ruth went to go glean from a harvest where there was a much richer harvest ahead of her than she even understood. Oh, when she sees Boaz, beloved, it's bigger, it's bigger than wheat and barley. This is her having Obed, who would have Jesse, who would have David, who would have Solomon, who would ultimately lead us to Jesus. And so let it, let it wash over you that when she by chance goes to the field of Boaz, God is weaving together a much larger, richer harvest than Ruth would ever even know in her lifetime. Something that you and I, you're here this morning. You are here having faith in Jesus Christ this morning because God weaved together a story with Ruth in it. And Tamar, for that matter. And Rahab, for that matter. But those are different stories. So the Lord is guiding steps here to the field of Boaz where Ruth finds favor. I would again make the application that for you and me, that means we can have confidence that the Lord guides our steps. Maybe you're walking in a season right now that you don't really understand. It feels lean to you. It feels hard. Here's the truth and beauty of the reality that the Lord guides our steps. In fact, Jesus would say it this way, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father, making a larger application that God is with us. He's guiding our steps. I love Boaz. I love the way that he's pictured here. So she happened to come into his field, and behold, Boaz came in from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Easy to read that and say, well, Brad, those were common greetings. Well, they were. Here's what I'd ask you to do. Go back and read Judges and find out how many people said that to each other. You won't find it. While I do think it's a common greeting and I won't make too much out of it, I will say it does get to the heart of who Boaz is. This is a little foreshadow. Not only is he a worthy man, he's a man with Yahweh as central to his thinking. So he says to his reapers, the Lord be with you, and they say, the Lord bless you. And so this greeting is, can be construed as merely mundane, or it can be Boaz confessing the presence of the Lord, which I choose to take it that way. And I love that you're getting here, where do we need the Lord's presence? In everything, in any harvest that we would participate in, we need God's presence. And that we see that the fear of the Lord gets incorporated in every aspect of life. 
Because here's where I think as believers we need to make sure we understand this. Sometimes we can live our lives if God just rules them insofar as it's connected with our church going or our church relationships. And we need to keep in mind, we need to constantly keep in mind that God is the ruler of life, period. Not just certain compartments of it. That our thoughts, our labors, our decisions, that they are submitted to the Lord, that He genuinely does rule our hearts, and that when we, when we think through life decisions, how are we incorporating the Lord into those things? Oh, I'm, I'm preaching to me this morning more than anybody because th- this becomes super convicting for me as a human being to look at how deeply we need the Lord's intervention and how often we can live with a goal of keeping our lives so compartmentalized that the Lord is here, here, and here, but we reserve these for ourselves. May we, may we be done with that. May we all be done with that and say, we, oof, we need the Lord in every part of it. I thought that thing was about to go flying off. Um, wouldn't be the first time I've done something dumb up in front of people. The text continues. Boaz said to his young man, who's in charge of the reapers, who's this young woman? <laughs> or whose young woman is this? No, he's not being whatever. In other words, hey, who is she with? Who, who is this woman with? What's her story? Kind of think of it along those lines. And so, how was Ruth noticed, right? She's not noticed for her beauty. She's not even really noticed for her youth, even though that's mentioned. When Boaz sees her, he sees a laborer. He sees a woman who's been working in the fields. So what is the true beauty of, of Ruth here on display? Is her service to Naomi. Her richness of character and heart and sacrifice given to this older woman in her life. Oh, beloved, I love it. Why? Because what's on display of Ruth here is her industry, her willingness to serve, her willingness to labor. Remember when we looked at Proverbs 31 in preparation for Ruth, what I told you was the woman's on display there, she's not mentioned for her beauty so much and, and her youth, but she's mentioned for her willingness to serve and labor for the good of other people. That what was on display was this woman whose heart was to love and serve. And so we see this in Ruth. So it's shades of of Proverbs 31, that she's being a good steward of what she's got. She's going out to serve. And being a good steward is never meant to replace faithfulness. So often you hear people do that to Mary and Martha in the New Testament. One wanted to be up serving all the time, and one wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. And we, and we give credence to the one who wanted to be at the feet of Jesus, and we kind, of, we kind of, you know, criticize the one who wants to be up serving. Well, let me tell you, that is not a mutual exclude. Those are not mutually exclusive. Sorry. <laughs> Just making sure a bomb wasn't about to go off is all. Um, those are not mutually exclusive. Those things go together. When we think about faith, and stewardship, they go, they're supposed to complement it. So that's why we are called to be faithful as an expression of faith. Hence, faith is a root of the word faithful. And Ruth is, is doing that. I don't know what type of person Ruth was before she came in contact with Naomi. 
But here's what we do know. After she makes her strong declaration of trust in the Lord and going where God will be, we know that Ruth seeks to labor, actively using her gifts to help Naomi and ultimately to glorify God. Beloved, I love this story, and you can probably tell I get excited about it because I just, there's no sword, there's no shield, there's no battle, there's no parting of a sea, and I love all those things. There's just this young Moabite woman who says, we got to eat, and I'm not going to leave Naomi because this young woman, knowing what this old widow woman was walking into without husband or sons, that's called compassion. That's called, I can look at you and tell exactly what's going to happen. I'm not going to let you go through that alone. We may die, but we're going to die together. We may lose everything, but you won't lose me. We may have the worst fate known to man, but we can hold hands through it and know that we don't have to be isolated and alone to have to walk through it. Beloved, that is a beautiful, beautiful, God-centered God-glorifying, God-exalting gift. And Ruth gave it to Naomi. Faith and trust don't mean we do nothing. They mean that we risk it. We risk it all, knowing that God is for us. So often, I think we can equate faith with our perception of what it means to wait on the Lord. I'm having faith. I'm just waiting on the Lord. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Waiting on the Lord is not a call to do nothing. It is a call to actively rest in the Lord's power, trusting that He will provide for us, continuing to walk on the pathway of righteousness. So waiting on the Lord is a call to actively rest, trusting that God, He will provide for us, walking on the pathway of righteousness. God is calling us to action. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to actively glorify Him. And and this is what it means to fear the Lord, these things. This is what it means to live with wisdom before the Lord. The redeeming love of God has provided every single thing that we need. And the question is, is will we walk in it? Joshua put it to the people right before he was retiring. Choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers or the gods across the river. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I think that's an active choice that we make again and again, not a salvation choice. That's not what I'm saying. A choice to daily strive in the fear of the Lord, motivated by faith in the Lord to be faithful. Ruth laid down her life for a friend. No greater love has any man than this, and he that lays down his life for a friend. Jesus did it for us redemptively. Ruth has done it for Naomi lovingly. The question is, is will we see the wisdom in that and do that ourselves? Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your, your word in Ruth this morning. Thank you for its power, God, the grace therein, the rich beauty therein. God, thank you for the mercy therein, and I pray that as we live out these precepts, oh God, that you would be glorified. God, that we would put away fear, the fear of man, the fear of uh, culture, the fear of disappointing other people, all those fears that so easily beset us and to live in faith, the faith that you are reigning, that you are ruling, that you have redeemed, 
that you will return and that we will live with you in glory. God, liberate us to serve. Liberate us to serve in a way that blesses other people and calls attention to your glory and your good. God, be with us, we pray. Amen.